welcome back to Ending the Myth for a very special discussion episode. Uh, we came back from a bit of a break yesterday, and we hit you guys with a huge two and a half hour long episode, just full of cheer and joy for the Christmas season. Uh, Munya, how does it feel to be back? Man, it feels feels great to be back uh <laughs> actually presenting these topics it doesn't feel that great uh <laughs> but you know um man it's good to, it's good to be back and i hope all of y'all are ready to just suffer along with us here yeah it's too bad this isn't a video series you could have seen our faces get like grayer and like more dour as we sunk down into our chairs as we were just recording that episode we were like, literally doing the black pill face yeah yeah just getting increasingly bummed out yeah <laughs> you might I, even be able to hear it in our voice at the end too yeah yeah i just went and took a nap afterwards just like yeah. I, I just gotta lay just down like, now fuck. yeah but um <laughs> But yeah, you know, uh, obviously there was a lot to cover in the last episode, a lot of important information we had to get out. So we wanted to save the discussion for a separate episode to kind of break it up for you a little bit. Give you a second to, you know, go pet a cat or watch a squirrel eat from a feeder or something. But uh, we wanted to come back and kind of discuss a little bit of uh, the you know, consequences of the U.S. actions in places like Iran and Vietnam and uh, Indonesia, as well as, you know, what that would mean for world politics uh, writ large. But before we did that, I already know some people are going to say, man, the U.S., they did a lot more than just overthrow the governments of Iran and Guatemala, uh, try and overthrow the government of Cuba, uh, launch a coup in Indonesia that killed millions, like killed millions in Indochina over 20 <laughs> years. They did way more than that. And yeah, we know. Okay, bud, like, how long do you want the episodes to be? But we thought we'd give some honorable mentions of all the coups and uh, military interventions that we weren't able to get to in the last episode, just to start this off. nineteen forty five to nineteen fifty four the u s funds arms and fights in a counterinsurgency campaign in the Philippines against Filipino communists nineteen forty six u s deploys troops to Iran to maintain the British claim to the country after the war nineteen forty six to nineteen forty nine u s deploys a large number of military advisors, training officers, and even some volunteer pilots to China to help Chiang Kai-shek fight the Chinese Communist Party. 1947 to 1949, the U.S. wages a counterinsurgency war against the Greek Communist Party. 1948, the U.S. rigs national elections in Italy in order to stave off a communist victory. 1948 to 1956, the CIA launches Operation Splinter Factor, a massive propaganda misinformation campaign aimed at convincing various Eastern Bloc countries that a coup or invasion was imminent. 1949 and 1952, U.S. and British intelligence agencies launch a failed coup against Enver Hoka in Albania. 1950 to 1960, 
CIA launches a terrorism campaign in East Germany that includes industrial sabotage, car bombings, assassinations, and the attempted poisoning of the milk supply of German elementary school students. 1953 to 1964, the CIA and the British intelligence launched multiple coup attempts against the government of British Guiana. 1955, the U.S. destabilizes the Costa Rican economy in an effort to topple the government. 1956, CIA agent Archibald Roosevelt, another relative of Teddy, tries to launch a failed coup attempt in Syria. 1956 to question mark? The CIA, U.S. military, and NATO organize terrorist attacks and assassinations across Western Europe, usually put under the umbrella Operation Gladio. 1958, the U.S. lands 14,000 Marines and Army units in Lebanon. 1958, U.S. military forces in the Panama Canal Zone clash with civilians, killing several. 1959, Marines are sent to Haiti to shore up the position of newly elected president Francois Parpadoc Duvalier. 1960, the CIA backs another military coup in Guatemala. Another one. <laughs> 1960, the CIA backs a coup in Congo that ultimately leads to the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. 1962, CIA provides the key information leading to the arrest of Nelson Mandela by apartheid South Africa. 1962, the CIA launches a military coup in Laos. They would ultimately build their own private army in the country as well as the world's largest heroin export operation. 1963, the CIA backs a military coup in Ecuador. 1964, the US military again clashes with civilians in the Panama Canal Zone. 1964, the CIA backs a military coup in Brazil. 1964 to 1975, the CIA and U.S. military launched a counterinsurgency operation in Bolivia, assassinate Che Guevara. 1965, the CIA backs a military coup in Congo. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. 1965, more than 20,000 troops are sent to invade the Dominican Republic. 1966, the CIA backs a military coup in Ghana. 1969, the CIA backs a military coup in Cambodia. 1970, the CIA and Iranian military launch a counterinsurgency operation in Oman. 1971, U.S. and Arvin forces invade Laos. 1972, CIA backs a coup in Iraq. 1973 to 1975, CIA launches a coup in Australia. <laughs> That's the wow. one everybody misses. That's, yeah, what, what the hell? <laughs> 1973, the CIA backs a military coup in Chile. 1975, U.S. military and CIA began sending support to Pol Pot's regime in Cambodia. Yeah, and so that was just a partial list from 1945 to 1975. Of course, uh, I mean, the U.S. backs a military coup in South Korea in 1960, as well as just props up essentially a military dictatorship this entire period in south korea uh <laughs> the cia is the ones who locate nelson mandela for apartheid south africa so they can arrest him but also like are the primary the u.s is the primary backer of apartheid south africa when as you'll hear next episode um when every when they became a pariah state at this time um man you could really fill this out more yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> Busy boys, but we wanted to break out a couple of things. Um, 
we wanted to talk a little bit about two of these coups, right, or two of these interventions, just to talk, you know, get a little more detail on them and talk about uh, what might be interesting or terrifying or awful or all those things about them. And the first was the 1964 coup in Brazil. Yeah, I mean, like, the 1964 coup in Brazil was a really key uh, moment, especially within the Cold War, because um, the U.S. Uh, backed a coup in Brazil that was, like, uh, viciously anti-communist, kind of similar to, like, what you, uh, what we described in Indonesia as well. Um, it was extremely violent and uh, fanatical anti-communism from uh, the Brazilian military, one that uh, all of the media in Brazil supported, um, the U.S. funded heavily. And after uh, its victory, um, Brazil really played a key part in the for the West to you know flip over other Latin American countries um, to the, the West side, um, you know, using violence, uh, which they ended up doing in the '70s and you know the late '60s as well. Um, it also really empowered. The racial politics in Brazil, which are uh, pretty damning, to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> like, you uh, know, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when people say that uh, Brazil is kind of like the West of Latin America, you know, like the, the way that Brazil even gained independence is kind of funny where, you know, like basically the, I think the prince or the colonist of Portugal, like just moved the capital to Brazil. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, that's an know. interesting story. I mean, you know, for those that maybe are not aware, Brazil was the second largest slave state in the Western Hemisphere, right? Second to the United States. Um, very similar in its structure to the uh, antebellum American South. And yeah, at about the mid 19th century, uh, there was a movement amongst Brazilian planters for independence from Portugal. Uh, with the idea that, like, you know, we want to control our own economy, you know, like the usual kind of stuff, right? Like, not exactly a revolutionary movement, just local, you know, capitalists trying to get out from under the sway of, you know, some sort of imperial, you know, dictator or whatever. But after seeing, you know, slave rebellions in the United States and things like that, the Brazilians decided, ooh, maybe fighting an actual war against Portugal for independence, that might lead to some instability that could give our slaves some ideas uh so instead we'll just force the emperor of portugal to move to brazil <laughs> like so they literally just uh using their economic power i mean they were far wealthier than portugal at this time just forced the uh the monarchy to move to brazil <laughs> instead <Yeah. laughs> so i mean you know an interesting thing but i mean because of that a lot of the uh racial anxieties we'll call them i guess to be charitable that exists in the united states exist in brazil as well yeah and i think during the transatlantic um slave trade i think that brazil received 10 times more slaves than the mm -hmm. u.s did you know over you know a, the nominal period of time uh so like i mean it truly was like a big time like mm -hmm. you know plantation state at that time um and those racial politics still live out today where indigenous people are under the same type of daily violence that they are in America. They're not even really seen as people. They're seen as like, you know, basically animals who are in the forest and stuff. And Brazil still treats them that way. The most interesting uh, racial dynamic is, I think, the uh, Japanese immigration movement to Brazil uh, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where 
they had such a white supremacist hierarchy that like, you know, when they saw Japanese people, they were like, oh, well, you know, this is kind of poses a problem because if our like, you know, like white Brazilians start like mating with Japanese people, you know, they might not be white. So there was an actual PR and uh, advertising campaign uh, showing like, you know, a like white Brazilian and a Japanese person being like, yeah, if you have a baby with a Japanese person, your baby will still be white. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's OK, you know. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, interestingly, because uh, Portuguese Catholicism had a slightly different bent to it than the uh, weird English Protestantism that had settled in the United States. Uh, there was more racial mixing in Brazil, and it's led to. I mean, it, it shows kind of what we argued early in this early in this series, which is that you know race is constructed, right? It's not you know something that's just handed down by nature. Right? It's constructed socially, and it's constructed around the you know economic needs of the ruling class of the society that's constructing it. And yep. Brazil has like a very complicated you know racial schema based off of this uh i mean the thing about the japanese is really interesting with brazil because what it reminds me of is really all the way through the second world war of course there was extreme anti-asian sentiment in the united states and that really does start to cool off after that and part of the reason is that the japanese become our junior partners and you know world empire right yep. and it's like you know maybe uh japan maybe the imperial japanese aren't that bad after all right and yeah suddenly uh, <laughs> you <yeah>. know <laughs> they get invited you know maybe if not into whiteness right like they get invited yeah, they definitely to were not into whiteness it. i mean yeah. like they, you know but they, they were get definitely invited, like, like a seat next to it <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah like, right i mean like it, it was it, it, for let's say like you know uh more brown uh or like you know f- uh people who are descendants of slaves from brazil like you're not gonna see like ad yeah. campaigns saying it's okay to you know have babies with them right yeah, like yeah. you know that there was a campaign to try to make like japanese yeah. like you know assimilate into whiteness right and so like these same like you know racial dynamics the same like class dynamics right but in particular ways that are formed from like its roots where who actually runs these countries and who's like the ruling class of them right Mm -hmm. Uh, the u.s and brazil actually do have a lot of parallels in that sense and they were kind of mirrored to form what came in 1964 which was uh basically a tag team between the u.s and brazil to conquer a lot of uh latin america and to uh, control them up to this day uh but that's not to say that brazil's people were like all for it right like i mean it was an unpopular movement that required a lot of violence to happen right but you know when you have a conservative movement in uh brazil which is not necessarily the case in a lot of latin american countries despite what you might think if you interact with diasporas in the u.s right like it's like you know like (laughs) an actual like firm like conservative movement is kind of hard to come by and comes from you know a ruling class that you know imposes it on you um and so even though a lot of latin america is very you know religious and stuff like the actual affect of like basically like you know um, someone like Bolsonaro becoming popular and getting like, you know, 48 million votes or whatever, right? That's like, <laughs> that that comes from somewhere, right? And that usually comes from, uh, you know, uh, 
relatively similar histories with the US and Brazil, right? Which is why it's mm. kind of familiar. Um, but certainly, like, uh, Brazil's politics also have complexities, too. And uh, it's not necessarily the most popular thing in the world. And there was still, like, a communist movement. It just so happens that Brazil was just – capitalism was pretty developed in Brazil. And, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. took advantage of their military. And essentially, you know, it's been a struggle ever since. That's why you see, like, you know, Bolsonaro versus Lula. This is actually kind of going mm. back to, you know – a lot of class struggle for decades now, right? Um, yeah, I mean, this yeah. is not uh, the distant past. Dilma had actually been tortured by the Brazilian military in her youth, right? Um, this is, yeah, like I said, this is not the decent past. There are people who still carry the uh, scars from the post-coup military, right? And of course, yep. this is Jair Bolsonaro's whole base of support is he wants to go back to that, right? It's like, yep. yeah, let's yep. like the military coup days were the best days. Let's go back to that. Um, yeah, in bringing back to this idea of Brazil's sort of role in the region in the 70s after the coup in Chile, they're going to team up with Chile for Operation Condor, uh, which is the CIA essentially feeding them names of leftists in South America and them creating death squads to go out and kill them. And they killed thousands of people across uh, South America in this sort of unholy alliance, you know, uh, yeah. of political repression in the 70s and 80s. You know, these things have long lasting impacts. And I don't want to, you know, necessarily get into, you know, torture porn or something like that but i think it's worth at least looking at what the violence of the brazilian military regime was like and i just want to read this excerpt this is from michael parenti's book the sword and the dollar and it's an excerpt taken from a report from cuban doctors who had gone to brazil to help reconstruct some of the people who have been tortured uh, by the Brazilian military, help reconstruct their bodies, essentially. Uh, so they write about two women who have been kidnapped and tortured. One of the women had her mouth taken away from her. The other lost half her nose, and they were released after several days with the gentle suggestion that they uh, be sure to visit their comrades to show off their, quote, cures. They had been turned into walking advertisements of terror, agents of demoralization and intimidation. In the case of the woman whose mouth had been shut, the most sophisticated techniques of plastic surgery have been employed. Great care had been taken by her medical torturers to obliterate her lips forever, using cuts and stitches and folds that would frustrate even the best reconstructive techniques. Luis, one of the Cuban surgeons, even thought he could detect a, quote, U.S. hand in this macabre handiwork or that of a Brazilian schooled in the United States. A small hole had been left in the face to allow the woman to take liquids through a straw and survive. When Luis and the medical team reopened the hole where her mouth had been, the sight was far more sickening than they had expected. All of the teeth had been removed and two dog fangs and scissors had been inserted in their place. A little surprise from the fascist doctors. And so, I mean, again, I don't want to like necessarily indulge in sort of the torture of, or whatever the slacious yeah, details actually no no brian um you know i'm just like looking at stats and the numbers uh we're becoming a true crime podcast now uh where yeah. that's all yeah. we do <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah and, I, and i don't want to do that because I, I do find that distasteful but i do think it's important to look in the eye sometimes 
what the U.S. is doing. You know, exactly. Uh, we we had that again, Prince quote at the beginning of the you know yesterday's episode about how empires don't happen by accident. And I think that sometimes when we talk about torture and the violence of empire, it's as if it just happens as if by accident somehow. And that's not the case. The violence is brutal. It's horrific. But most importantly, it's planned and it's done for a reason and a purpose, you know, and that requires uh, attacking the politics of it sort of head on. Now, that being said, I wanted to talk about Haiti just a little bit as well. I mean, Haiti has long been the victim of U.S. imperialism. Uh, in 1946, there was actually a series of strikes on the island that overthrew the you know leader that had been stalled by the United States in the 1930s. Uh, the U.S. intervened at that point to get their own leader and you know to get a new U.S. puppet in charge. That came to a head again in 1956 after there was a hurricane that hit the island the previous year, uh, which you'll find is going to become a theme in Haiti post uh, Second World War, natural disaster and political unrest. And uh, the U.S. sends Marines into Haiti in 55 and 56 to install a new leader or I'm sorry, to oversee elections. Oh, that's that's what I meant to say. Right, right, right. Thank you you for correcting the record there. And the guy that comes into power is a guy named Francois Papadoc de Valier. Papadoc de Valier and his son, Baby Doc de Valier, will rule Haiti for the next several decades. Um, And they do all the things that you're imagining, which is they form death squads to hunt down leftists. Thousands of people are disappeared and murdered. You know, the playbook, right? But... The interesting thing about it in, you know, I want to talk about this particularly relative to what you discussed about Brazil and race is Papa Doc Duvalier, his sort of politics were came under the term Norisme in Haiti. And I apologize for mm. uh, butchering the Haitian French of all this stuff. Yeah. But but Norisme is best translated as black power. Right. And Papa Doc's whole policy was that his public facing policy was that the problems of Haiti can be summed up to the fact that they have been ruled by the mulatto leadership of Haiti for too long. And what they needed was a new, true black leadership to take over the islands and run it in the interest of the people. Now, this was in direct contrast to the rising Communist Party of the 1940s, who were arguing that there was both an imperial and class problem (laughs) on the island of Haiti. Uh, and, and he was basically being like, oh, no, we, we we got it was just like a racial politics thing, basically. Yeah. Papa Doc's argument was that, no, the problem isn't class. Uh, the problem is race. Right. Which allowed for a cross class alliance between, right. you know, uh, a darker hued black working class and ruling class against a lighter hued white ruling or not white, yeah. a lot of ruling class. I mean, and I, I think, A, this shows. A couple of interesting things. Like again, we talk about race being constructed and things like that. Haiti is an island that is more or less devoid of white people, right? Uh, for historical reasons. Yet the U.S. and the sort of right-wing leadership of Haiti were still able to construct a racial schema that could be used to disrupt class 
organizing right and to create this idea of like no don't do that do cross-class organizing right let all you need is the right guy in charge that's it you know like right. <laughs> this idea of challenging the way that society is actually socially organized forget that right at the same time too it also shows the deep cynicism of the cia right i think sometimes while the united states is certainly fucking racist and it certainly engages in very racist activities abroad which we'll talk about a little bit more later uh and certainly when it looked at all of africa and was like who can we have as our ally was like apartheid south africa like <laughs> instantly pointed at yeah. them and was like yes, yes which we'll talk about next episode i think it shows the deep cynicism that they were, went into haiti looked at the you know environment landscape and were like well there's no apartheid whites here that like you know you can actually yeah. side with <laughs> right and they basically took this ideology of norisme and then turned it into uh, essentially a campaign of insane right-wing anti-communist violence. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what to do with that other than to say, uh, this is a, a, this is, this is a wicked country. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. This is an evil place. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it does go to show that like the leverage of like, racial politics to obfuscate class politics. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately like, you know, crush communist movements in countries uh, that that plays a significant role. Like whether there's like white settlers in a country or like, you know, just like using racial politics to obscure the actual like class divide going on. Right. Like to have like a cross class mixture, um, you know, when it comes to politics to basically be a uh, counter-revolutionary, like you need to have someone there who, you know, can s- have that be like viable, right? Like you can't just bring a white person in and mm-hmm. do that, right? Like yeah, yeah. in Haiti, you can't do that. And maybe in a place that has like an apartheid regime, sure. Like, but you know, there's different tactics. And I do think that you're right, Brian, is that there is deep cynicism in what the CIA does, but it's ultimately... Uh, comes back to you know destroying politics that might uh, have them control their own resources right whether yeah. that's like a communist movement or like a nationalist movement etc right something that's not within well, the bounds of the west control munya would you be shocked to hear that one of the uh, positions of the haitian communist party was that a they should engage in land reform meaning land okay. redistribution yeah b nationalize some important natural resources <laughs> that the u.s have been hyper exploiting for the previous 50 years and then would you be even more shocked to learn that after the rise of francois de Valier, uh none of that happened and the u.s grip on haiti is a point of resource extraction only tightened yeah. well there you go right I mean-, <laughs> I mean and you know giving away the game of what this is really all about which is the maintenance of the capitalist order with the United States on top and the resources of the world, you know, be it money, tin, oil, right? All those things flowing to it. Yeah, exactly. Now, that being said, we, you know, talking about Indonesia and Vietnam in yesterday's episode, yeah, I, I struck even as we we're going through it, about these sort of historical roots in the genocides that ultimately happened in these places, right? Or the mass killings or whatever you want to call it, right? That ultimately happened in these places. 
And I, I just thought that maybe we could talk about it a little bit because, you know, we're sort of touching on stuff that we we've discussed in previous episodes. And I just want to kind of draw the listener's ear, I guess, back <laughs> back to those episodes. But man, we mentioned it a couple of times in the episode, and I gotta mention it again. The occupation of the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century. Maybe the most important thing the U.S. military has ever engaged in as far as determining its policy towards the world, etc. It all really comes back to that when analyzing imperialism in the U.S. I mean, it really does. It's kind of depressing. Well, you can really just, you know, put a laminated copy and trace whatever is, you know, happening within like, the U.S. empire and like within other countries to what happened in the Philippines. Right. And it's that same playbook kind of over and over again, used in different ways, of course, because mm-hmm. there's they're different countries with different yeah. material conditions. But yeah. And um, the refining you know, it too, the refining yes, the playbook exactly. basically. Right. Right. Um, yeah, the use of uh, lists of dissidents and things like that for rounding up and disappearing, essentially, right now. In the Philippines, they put them in concentration camps to die, although a lot of them were just killed instantly. Uh, in Indonesia, they realized, although the Indonesia also had concentration camps, but they realized you could largely skip that stage. Just yeah, kill them instantly, right? right? You know? uh, but that list method, I mean, we talked about how critical that was in the Philippines and how the FBI brought it back to the United States. And then, you know, it's now exported, right, across the world. The use of concentration camps, right, you know, uh, the US, that's going to become a central part of American occupations from that point on. The beginnings of counterinsurgency campaigns, the idea that wars are against the civilian population, not the military, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the Philippines is... The U.S. had done some of that before, but the Philippines is really where they're like honing that into a like actual policy. Yeah. And then, you know, the one that maybe I want to spend a little more time with is this idea of particularly in Asia, Orientalism and the use of sort of propaganda and misinformation and fighting these kind of wars. So I want to give you this quote, Munya. This is sort of a, a famous quote for the Vietnam heads out there. Uh, General Westmoreland, who was in charge of the the U.S. military operation in Vietnam for the height of the war, uh, in 1974 being interviewed for a documentary, he gave this quote, quote, The Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Life is plentiful, life is cheap in the Orient, and that's the philosophy of the Orient. Now, he gave that quote, and the the documentarian kind of interrupted him was like hey that sounds kind of bad did you want to reword that like that might come off as offensive and according to the documentarian he then basically was like oh yeah definitely gave the exact same quote but <laughs> but they had some sort of film issue and what? they didn't get it on camera so the documentarian stopped him again and was like hey can we just do it a third time really think about it really think about what you want to say and actually, the quote I read you is the third quote, which the that's documentarian the third take. That's the third take, which the documentarian said is basically exactly identical to the previous two. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> right. General <Insane>. Westmoreland, sir. <laughs> God. But yeah, I mean, it, it's this interesting thing because. Yeah, they said this during the Korean War, too, right? But, you know, the Oriental doesn't place the same, you know, high price on life as does the Westerner. But 
when we talk about the war in, say, Vietnam, who did the killing in that war? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. kills millions. The U.S. loses 50,000. Jimmy Carter calls it mutual destruction on both sides, a mutual tragedy. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, who's, who's defending and who's like halfway across the world, right? Yeah. On the other side of the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dropping bombs on a like essentially peasant society from 80,000 feet in the air, you know, dropping thousand pound bombs on them, you know, carpet bombing like jungle villages, you yeah. know. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you could say it's a deep cynicism, right? Which, again, on a lot of levels, it probably fucking is to say this kind of shit. But the other thing is, Westmoreland probably believes this. That's why he kept saying it over and over again. Yeah. Right. And I think it gets to this point that we'll talk about maybe here in a little bit. But, you know, there, there's this saying, right, that like every lie is an, you know, is a confession or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that this, you know, not to get psychological, but I think it is displacing what you're doing onto your enemy. Like in that you have to pretend that this is how the enemy thinks and believes because you know you're there to essentially engage in a genocide, right? To murder them in mass. And if you look at them as anything other than human, you know, or you look at them as human, right? You know, you can't do that, right? So it has to be they believe life is cheap, which is why I don't have to take into consideration the value of their lives. Yeah, right. right? They so have nothing folks, to lose. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And the thing that's kind of interesting about this is as far as our conversation about moving west, this is just an extension of America's westward expansion, right? The reason why the Indian could be displaced, murdered, etc. was, well, they're like, A, some sort of subspecies, and B, they just don't have the same value on, like, land, on life, all those things, right? Really so, convenient, you know. It's really mean, convenient <laughs> when you want to kill them and steal when their land. When you want to kill them and steal their land, but they don't value those two things at all. So it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah, and it also is a sort of post facto justification about how what you did ultimately was the best thing. Then, right? Because yeah. if they don't value those things and you do, and you replace them, then it's for the greater good. Exactly right. And I really do think that this is a a core part of America's imperial ideology that, you know, you could trace all the way back to that westward expansion. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is why, um, you know, our one of our claims in Ending the Myth is that, you know, the wars abroad affect attitudes back in, you know, the imperial core, which would be the United States. Racism actually will come back home, and that impacts how people even view you know, uh, each other and treat each other systematically too, right? It doesn't just, the wars don't just stay abroad, right? It ultimately does come back home and those same like racial politics and racial attitudes, right? Um, mm -hmm. And just ideas of Orientalism, um, seeing people as subhuman, right? Th that all affects people who maybe even weren't like, you know, fighting in the war, um, just the general population of the U.S. in general, that 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 creates this disease of, of thought, right, that mm. proliferates, right? And when wars keep happening like that, it's actually a, a push and pull, right? There's mm -hmm. it's doesn't it doesn't just stay there. So um, and that's, I think, a key 
uh, point that like General Westmoreland is kind of saying what like actually Americans hear that and that might actually make sense to people. Right. Yeah. Because that's what we're taught so much, because in order to justify us, uh, you know, the highlight reel that we did just, you know, at the top of this episode, um, in order for a population to really tolerate that, you need some type of story to justify it. Um, whether it's like bullshit or not, doesn't really matter. It's about actually being like, oh, well, you know, they they like getting bombed. You know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could even yeah. be like that stupid. Right. But I mean, the fact is, is that like. Uh, if you're completely isolated from a lot of the world and your your country, your government is the aggressor of that, right? Um, your country kind of needs to be like psychotically racist in order to for the people yeah. to really tolerate that. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, uh, I, I think that I think it's part of what makes racism inextricably linked to capitalism. Like, I don't think you can have a anti-racist capitalism. It just doesn't work because it's yeah. such an important you know, tool or technology, if you will, for hyper exploitation and for this general function of capitalism itself. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, uh, doesn't make you feel good, I guess, after saying it out loud. No. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this is tied into another important precedent, I think, for the mass murders of the Cold War, which was the air war over Japan during World War II. Uh, the air war over Japan was particularly savage as far as the, mass bombing of civilian targets and things like that the firebombing of places like tokyo ultimately crescendoing into the use of nuclear weapons uh for the first and only time in warfare by the united states uh twice within the span of what like a week and a half or whatever uh, or a week i guess but the justification of that air war and the savagery of that air war, which was remarked on even by office, military officers at the time as being particularly savage, was always that, well, the Japanese, they have a different view of human life than we do. So, you, you know, if I kill like one Frenchman or something like that, that has an impact on his family. On his, <laughs> they, on his side oh, they would care. They would care. <laughs> But here yeah. it's like an ant colony and stepping on yeah, an ant right. colony, you know, like nobody, you know, the death of the little minions doesn't matter, which is why we have to kill them by even bigger and bigger margins um, in that that air war philosophy. It, it continues into the Cold War period, but I think the fact that the war with Japan ends shortly after the atomic bombings, because the air war had been so savage, because they didn't have to invade the island of Japan, it also convinces U.S. policymakers this is how you can win a war relative on the cheap, right? As far as political and economic costs, is just bomb the shit out of civilian populations until they give up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess we saw that with other wars after that, right? Following that is Korea and then Vietnam, right? I mean, Korea being the big one, killing one third of all uh, people in North Korea. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, or yeah. what would become North Korea, I guess. But yeah, yeah. And in Vietnam too, I mean, the vast majority of the deaths. I mean, we we gave some very, you know, one in particular harrowing story of what the war in Vietnam looked like on the ground, as far as what soldiers were doing on the ground killing civilians and things like that but the real meat grinder of vietnam was the air war i mean just the mass carpet bombing of civilian populations and you know the logic behind that was well we just bombed them enough 
they'll finally give in, right? Like, we'll break their will. Uh, right. It turned out to not be true. It wasn't true in North Korea either, right? Um, but, you know, the U.S. killed millions in the process of figuring that out. And I think the U.S. still basically buys into this idea that you just bomb people into uh, surrender. Now, that combined for two particular, uh, particularly horrific policies in both Korea and Vietnam, which was the bombing of dams, the targeting of dams, in mm. order to destroy uh, agricultural stocks in these populations, which combined, you know, old medieval techniques of starving your enemy to death with the sort of modern horrors of, you know, capitalist technological, you know, warfare, terror from the skies. And the combination, uh, I don't think has been good for society <laughs> to, <laughs> to have those two things come together, the world's biggest imperial power. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of what we're going to talk about is good here, I got to say. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, it, it, it is so true that, I mean, that is like a war innovation in itself, right? Um, mm -hmm. The idea that, I mean, like some of the quotes that we had in the last episode, too, was just like CIA people and people in the State Department just being like, you know, fuck it i don't care if we're violating the geneva conventions or whatever yeah. fucking rule you have right it's not like you can just ignore them actually and yeah, you know yeah. if you're powerful enough you can get away with it right like, yeah it so, turns out they're right you can yeah you can yeah. i mean it's it's it, it is really the same logic that even like capitalists put to you know like violating like you know like corporate law too it's like well we can like give all of these people drugs and we might get slapped a fine but that fine will be a drop in the ocean to mm -hmm. what we actually gain and it's kind of you know it's, it's true with just like empire at large right if you if you're powerful enough uh you could just ignore all of those rules and just attack civilian populations use chemical weapons right like you could do really whatever you want as long as you win and your empire remains powerful right it is yeah. all about power and that's why you can't like have like you know small um countries that just went through like a revolution to do the same thing is because they don't actually they're they're not you know they're not the dictators of global capitalism right i mean like you they don't have a veto at the un you know yeah, uh, there's yeah. like a lot of things that you're you're beholden to if you're like a newly third world country that you just can't do and that's what the u.s took advantage of within the cold war i think yeah and it explains you know why a country like iraq in its brief war with kuwait destroyed bits of kuwaiti infrastructure and civilian infrastructure the u.s pointed to that as these great war crimes justifying the first persian gulf war which certainly i mean don't get me wrong are like that's true they are, but, yeah. it, but it explains Saddam hussein's confusion when he then looked at the united states and was like but this is how you guys taught us to fight wars <laughs> like yeah like this what, what the fuck are you talking about yeah this is yeah. what you told us to do in iran for the last 10 years like i thought i i was literally doing what you told me to do you know uh, explain some of his confusion over the U.S. response to it. You know, though there's going to be other sources for that confusion as well, which we'll get them to later. But uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's just a clear power politics. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is sort of one of these precursors for these, you know, the mass violence of the Cold War is the Nazi connection. And I know it's like somewhat trite and internet conversations or conversations on the left to say like this person's a nazi that person, everybody's a nazi right i want to be absolutely clear the nazi connection we talk about the nazi connection of the cold war between the u.s and nazis we mean actual fucking nazis now 
you might have noticed a trend in a lot of these stories about the U.S. uh, siding with the people who were collaborators during the Second World War against those who fought against Japanese or German occupation. That's across the board in the Cold War and pretty much every map that was part of the Second World War, the U.S. is siding with the collaborators. And that means more than just like, oh, we want to use these armies or whatever. They were actually folding into the U.S. counterinsurgency operation former operatives of these states, of these occupations, which, to be clear, in the case of Europe, right, that means actual Nazis, right? Actual Nazis engaged in, you know, the worst crimes and depredations of the Nazi regime. And in Asia, it means actual Japanese fascists from the Japanese Imperial Army, again, who had been engaged in the worst crimes and depredations of those occupations. Yeah, I mean that's what um, that's what was so like kind of ridiculous about Shinzo Abe, like you know being on a uh, like posing with like old military gear, right? Uh, yeah. Especially from like you know World War Two and like you know uh, with I think like specific numbers that reference like people were basically like this is legitimately the equivalent of if if like the German like prime minister or ch- German chancellor was basically like on a Nazi tank, like, you know, yeah. going throughout the city and like saluting. Right. I mean, like, that, that's Meanwhile, like, Angela Merkel's like, wait, can I do that? Yeah. She's like, <laughs> fuck, wait, hold up, hold up. Hold yeah, up. She was also saying that, but from a different angle of like, I should be able to do that. Like, yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not fair that he can do it. And yeah. I can't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's like that's the real Orientalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i mean like i mean the the japanese uh you know we didn't go in detail about it in the episode but i mean like japanese were just significant uh nazi collaborators and had their own like fascist uh you know government that was in place that was able to you know expand an empire in ways like in indonesia it's like some accounts say that the japanese occupation in indonesia after the dutch uh left some say that like it was more brutal than the Dutch Mm -hmm. occupation. Right. And this is not like a contest between which colonists was better or which was worse. Right. I mean, it's all awful, but you know, when the Japanese were coming in, they saw people of Asian descent and they were like, Oh wow. Like I, we're welcoming these guys in at this point. Cause it's like, Oh, it's better than these fucking like Dutch freaks who were there. Right. wooden shoes. Yeah. Right. No, exactly. (laughs) And like, they like, uh, you know, at dinner parties, we'll just stare at each other and shit. Like that's weird, you know? Um, (laughs) so, you know, they're like, Oh, well, I mean, at least these guys are going to protect us. And then like, I think that very person gets like, um, you know, whipped with a, with a, um, automatic weapon and stuff Mm -hmm. and, you know, goes under significant brutal occupation. Right. And that's what Japan was doing at a lot of the world, which is, you know, why I think we, Ask like, oh, why is Japan like, you know, considered part of the West? Well, you know, it's not like necessarily it just so happens that the US and like Western Europe are, you know, within technically the West sense, but the West is more of like is is a movement of global capitalism, right? And mm-hmm. um and first world empires. And uh Japan was absolutely uh one of those, which is why they were involved in the first and second world mm-hmm. wars, is because they were competing empires on the same level and not ones that were uh, getting colonized or newly decolonized so yeah they were um, able to yeah. uh, get in before the u.s closed the ranks on like you know first world versus everything else and, yeah you know, exactly. the japanese got in at the wire right and 
And the thing is, is yeah, the Japanese occupation of, you know, Asia, essentially China, Vietnam, etc. Right. Philippines. Right. was every bit as brutal as the Nazi occupation of Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, it doesn't get covered as much in the United States, just, I mean, honestly, because of racism. I mean, like, because people just don't care about that kind of stuff, right? But uh, it was every bit as brutal. And the thing was, after these occupations ended, the U.S. didn't just bring the former occupiers into the ranks. They were intensely curious about the occupations themselves. And so they studied Japanese, you know, what we would call now counterinsurgency manuals, just like they studied Nazi counterinsurgency manuals and stuff like that. And they sought to put those techniques into practice. And that's why in places like Korea, part of the stiff resistance to the United States and Korea was that when the U.S. showed up, all the Koreans were like, this is just the exact same thing. And they didn't mean that like another country is here to like rule over us. They mean wow, they're doing the same torture techniques even, like <laughs> sometimes carried out by the exact same people, you know? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it was very hard to see the difference, <laughs> you know, uh, between uh, the U.S. occupation and the Japanese occupation. And I think that close relationship between the United States and these former fascist, uh, you know, counterinsurgency leaders and things like that uh i think that shaped the politics of the cold war uh, as far as how they saw you know this is how you have to fight communism now this kind of gets to the point we made in yesterday's episode there was probably a very weird quote that you guys heard in there from a guy named guy pocker who's a fucking psycho probably in the cia who was teaching at uc berkeley worked for rand institute where there was a strange quote in there we talked about how he feared that the Indonesian generals, you know, basically didn't have the stomach to do what needed to be done in Indonesia, not like the Nazis, uh, you know, who were, who did have the stomach to do that to the German Communist Party. And that, uh, you know, he's like, look, speaking wistfully of the Nazis, he was just like, you know, they had the, the desire to do it. They had the grit and the will to get it done, <laughs> all this kind of stuff, right? And it might sound a little weird or whatever, except for the fact that given Parker's sort of connections to the U.S. intelligence services and things like that, he's talking about guys he probably knows. Like, when he says, the, like, the Nazis had the grit to get do what needed to be done in, you know, Germany and Eastern Europe, he's probably referring to fucking Hans over here, his buddy that he's, like, had lunch with a million times, who's yeah. telling him <laughs> wistful stories of all the, like, villages he wiped out, you know? Um, you know, this isn't people cosplaying like they do today like the internet nazis like you know like uh wears a german helmet that he bought at a costume store and pretends like he was you know he was going to be in the wehrmacht or something right uh, uh when these western officials are talking in these ways they're referring to their friends <laughs> like the yeah, guys yeah. <laughs> that are actively ally allying with them and helping them and, you know, Guy, of course, later came around and was like, you know, it turns out the Indonesians did have it, you know, sometimes, sometimes you doubt a team. <laughs> it was like Baker Mayfield going into that game, you know, they just had all it those was. doubts, but they, but they came, you know, they were Clutched able to pull it, it together. Yeah. You know? um, and I guess this is to get to a thought that I had last night that I don't know that I've necessarily fully thought this out. Uh, and it's probably going to be maybe a touch controversial. 
But I think there's a way that you could think about the extermination campaigns in Korea, Vietnam, Indonesia, Brazil, Guatemala, etc., etc., etc. There's a way you can think about those extermination campaigns as simply an extension of the Holocaust itself and of the death camps themselves. Yeah. Literally to the point that they're sometimes being run by these same exact people. Um, and like I said, I haven't necessarily put a whole world's worth of thought into this, but I think there's something there. And I'm just going to say for anybody that's interested in, in uh, pursuing that, I think that's something worth pursuing. Yeah, I think you definitely are onto something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cheerful. Uh, <laughs> the final little bit, as far as, you know, the sort of precursors to these mass killings that I, you know, I just wanted to discuss a little more that we talked about in the yesterday's episode, but I just think deserves a little more uh, discussion is this role of rumor and misinformation in genocide, particularly the myths in Indonesia around women castrating men. Now, Munya, I'm going to read you. This is from an article, and I'm going to butcher this uh, woman's name, from Saskia Waringa, who is a mm -hmm. Dutch sociologist who writes a lot about Indonesia. And here's an article she has about the role of sort of sexism and the idea of like, needing to put women in their place that you know fueled uh, a lot of killing in indonesia she's describing the monument that sits at the place where the six generals who were kidnapped by the september 30th movement the very real and not cia uh created <laughs> front uh at the place where they threw the bodies down into the well there's a giant state monument there to essentially commemorate saharto's victory and so she describes the freeze on it the central part of the mural is devoted to the events at Lubang Baia, which is just the place where they killed the generals. The generals are being clubbed and thrown into the well. They are surrounded by representations of women. To the left, three women are standing. One of them is dressed in a sexual manner and argues defiantly with a man. The arguing couple is very ugly. Beside her, two dancing women are arranged one of whom has a wreath of flowers representing the so-called dance of the fl fragrant flowers by means of which the unfortunate generals were allegedly seduced. Above the, uh, above the well, one woman is portrayed leaning against a tree. She is clad in uniform trousers and a blouse that clearly reveals her full breasts. A knife is stuck in her belt. Her posture, again, is defiant. More to the right to the, of the scene is dominated by the overpowering figure of General Suharto. Under his left arm, two women are standing, heads down, attitude demure. One of them is carrying a baby. The figure of General Suharto has intervened and turned those defiant, seductive, dangerous, and castrating women into the very symbols of obedience and motherhood. The last scene shows the all-powerful General and President Suharto in front of what is presumably a courtroom absolute military and legal power is his and i just wanted to bring this up to talk a little bit maybe about the role that this kind of rumor misinformation plays in creating a situation of mass killing the first role of course is to dissolve social bonds right dissolve the bond between men and women you know exacerbate uh conservative or right-wing grievances 
about women that could then be justify you know justify acting out violently against them and then the sort of resolution that allows the fascist so like Suharto is not going to make your life better right like the economy is not going to get better in Indonesia <laughs> like under this guy right you know so what can he give you and what he can give you is now your bitch wife has to shut up when you come home yeah. Yeah. Uh, otherwise maybe you'll have her murdered <laughs> you know? and it'll be okay and it'll yeah. be okay right and I, I think, you know, when you talk about like what do these regimes have to offer their population, I mean, that's what they have to offer. Like Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the propaganda I think that we talked about in the last episode and there's like the myth making um was just so extreme and I think that it was really required because like these narratives, I mean, they sound out of like something that you would read on like, you know, like InfoWars or something. I yeah, mean, like yeah. something so like ludicrous, like, you know, uh, like demonic chants that like they're doing and, you know, all of these things. But like, you know, if, if that gets spread around enough and like uh, eventually uh, that's coinciding with violence, it's essentially just like a speed run of a dehumanization campaign for genocide, which is required, yeah. right? Like to, in order to carry out a genocide, especially within the country that you're doing it, you need, you need to at least have a story of why this is happening, right? And for people to get on board, the easiest way is to, for them to see them as subhuman or ants, right? Mm -hmm. um, so something that like needs to be crushed um, for the greater good of you know the country, right? Just their existence in general is bad. And now, oh, mm -hmm. lo and behold, uh, every communist movement, every feminist movement, every socialist movement, uh, every nationalist movement uh, is now uh, a part of that. That needs to just be killed because they're bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and they're evil for inexplicably evil, and will do like you know perverted things to your dead body and stuff. And you know, um, eventually, like we said, uh, the eventually some people, even in the nationalist party, uh, that were you know maybe like in Bali, uh, so when the genocide swept over uh, eastward to Bali, you know, uh, people who were in the same party of the guys who were victims of getting murdered were now doing the murdering. And that mm -hmm. that has to do with, um, you know, consistent, uh, you know, propaganda messaging, right? You know, it takes a lot in order to get people to buy into it. But, you know, if you do what Suharto did and, you know, keep on saying and have every uh, news publication, including Western news publications, regurgitate that line have like full stories and like movies that you play like every single year on it eventually that just becomes fact whether it's actually mm -hmm. fact or fiction eventually that's just accepted as the truth you know yeah and arguably you can't carry out that type of campaign without without that uh present you can't just like cold blood just say yeah we're just doing this just because uh, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, if you think about the scale of what was carried out in Indonesia, I mean, it's such an enormous task. I mean, you know, if you if you separate the morality or the horror from it, right, it's an enormous task. You're essentially telling millions of people, hey, we got to liquidate a party of three million people. So we need you to take two years off from working, essentially, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just start murdering your neighbors. Like, yeah. yeah, everybody around you, people that you 
maybe had dinner with before people that your kids go to school with right all this kind of stuff you need to take them out in the fields chop them up throw them into fucking rivers right and to have such an extreme ask requires an extreme emergency and so people point and they say the the propaganda is so goofy right it's so crazy it's over the top it's like the ask of what they want people to do is what's over the top that's crazy over the top yeah yeah and the propaganda then matches the ask right because hey if i tell you to go kidnap your neighbor in the night and chop them up and throw them in a fucking river you know, like, I'm gonna have to give you some better explanation for that than the US is worried about the, you know, oil rights in <laughs> yeah, our country. Right. Yeah, you know, so there's gonna have to be some extreme reason, you know, and it's gonna play on the petty grievances, right of the population, which in this case, you know, centered largely around women, right, and the grievances against women. And, you know, Europe and Germany, right, it's centered around Jews have been just historically singled out as, uh, you know, folk devils or whatever to blame whenever a country was in crisis, right? And it's, you know, I, I guess, you know, we're kind of showing when we recorded this a little bit, but it, it I, I can't help but think about the mass shooting in Colorado Springs and, you know, the debates that you sometimes get on things like NPR and stuff about like, oh, conservatives go and yell at librarians because of grooming and, like, you know, school library, like, in some book at the school library, you know, uh, some kid says he's gay and that's grooming or whatever. And there's a, a somewhat haughty tone of, like, oh, these, like, stupid idiots believe this stuff. And I think it's cart before the horse kind of stuff of, like, yeah. no, they want to kill you. Yeah. And after that, they're fabricating a system of beliefs to justify the action that they want to do right like every one of those people yelling at the library wants to be a mass shooter they just can't do it like they're you know they just don't have the stones or the whatever to get it together to do it they're doing their part in the propaganda campaign but you know i guess the point is just because conservative demonization of a group seems goofy or silly doesn't mean it's not extremely dangerous. And in fact, it probably is a sign of how fucking dangerous it actually is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it gives you a cautious ballet to basically do what you want to these people, right? It's it, And I think that it's a good exercise to in listeners today to, you know, just think about what might, you know, what characterizations you might be hearing uh, in the news today and think about why they might be, the types of news that might be uh, reported, especially for foreign countries, but also for, you know, our, to like trans people at home, um, you know, a lot of oppressed groups, uh, why, why it seems like everything seems so um, awful in a particular country, right? Yeah. Like, uh, why, why is it that Venezuela seems like a complete nightmare when you turn on the news every single day, right? Or yeah, like, yeah. or if the people in Cuba uh, just like yearn for freedom because they're under a just a extremely brutal rule that seems almost cartoonish, right? Uh, all mm -hmm. of those things, I think you have to like kind of view critically as like that's a part of the same system um, that we're talking about here too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, just to be a little uh, equal opportunity here, I guess, to uh, uh, kind of slam the Dems as well. You know, it's worth thinking about when Democratic mayors 
all across the country moved to use the police to brutally put down the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, all of a sudden, you know, out of nowhere from Occupy Democrats, all this was this whole thing about how, oh, Black Lives Matter is actually a Russian op. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like Russia invented racism in America in like 1945. (laughs) And everybody would be okay with it if, uh, you know, if the Russians weren't just doing, you know, aggravating racial people marching in the street is actually Putin's plan all along. And again, I think that is a post facto justification for what they wanted to do, which was use the police to put down the protests. Right. Yep. And, uh, which requires yeah. a lot of violence, people getting yeah. a lot of people getting arrested, um, you know, a lot of unfair uh, trials or people are still, you know, in prison from 2020, you know, like, yeah, yeah and there's a lot died. of, yeah, there's a lot, yeah, people died and there's a lot <laughs> of situations that could have been a lot worse. I mean, we certainly know of a situation in Seattle where the police having shot somebody with a tear gas canister directly in the chest that that person literally was dead on the scene and was brought back to life by, uh, you know, emergency, you know, uh, not even emergency medical. I mean, it was the the medical teams, volunteer. the protesters there, the volunteer medical volunteer teams. Volunteer medical teams. And the police were firing tear gas into the tent while they're bringing this person back to life purposefully to, you know, drive them away. Um, you know, I mean, it could have been so much worse. But the thing is, is, the justification for it getting worse was always just right there waiting to be grabbed at by the media promoted on social media, you know, and then spread by people who would just rather not think about these things, you know? So they, yeah, sure. Russia, Russia did this. The reason yeah. why black people are mad about racism is Russia. That makes total sense to me, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, Cambridge and- Analytica strikes again, man. Crazy. Yeah. Now, I, I want to have, we have a couple of questions here that are just about the Cold War a little more generally that I think are worth kind of discussing. And the first is about this Cold War, Hot War uh, sort of uh, dichotomy that just the name of the Cold War draws, right? So there was this sort of shadow that always hung over the Cold War, which was the potential of the United States and the Soviet Union to engage in a nuclear war against one another, yes. right? Yes. And I think that that potentiality has colored how we view U.S. actions across the world during the Cold War period, right? So the general, I'll say, like, mainstream kind of view you get in a, like, high school textbook is that the Cold War was a period of detente where the U.S. and the Soviet Union, uh, there was tension, but they avoided war through, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, fear of mutual destruction or whatever. Right, right. right. But in reality, it was an extremely violent time. <laughs> you know, yeah. war was hotter than ever <laughs> during the Cold War. <laughs> and um, around the world, actually. So, yeah, war around the world. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this gets to a argument that Vincent Bevins makes in the Jakarta Method, which I think is actually... You know, I think a lot of people obviously pointed out that the Cold War wasn't exactly a Cold War, but I think that was the first to put it in this particular language that what you're looking at in the Cold War is less the, a Cold War and more World War Three. Yes. Like it was right. the continuation of World War Two, just as the World War Two is the continuation of World War One. 
we were watching World War III take place, we've just decided propagandistically to write it out of our heads in that way. Because that would involve just looking at too many unsavory details. Right. Yeah. And which is why we like a lot of the material of what happened in what we call the Cold War. Um, a lot of those hot wars really are either um, leaked to saying, oh, well, there was this conflict in this country. There was a coup like within the country, but like, you know, that's just internal country affairs, you know? Uh, yeah. Like, I think yeah, that's yeah. what you hear a lot about. <laughs> like, the, oh, the Vietnam you know, War was just some internal, internal conflicts. Yeah, yeah, internal right. conflict internal between conflict. Uh, yeah. people in North Vietnam. <laughs> "Quote unquote," people in South Vietnam and yeah. uh, the United States who just happened yeah. to be there on vacation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, uh, that's like it's funny because like a lot of when I talk about um, coup d'etats that happened in Africa, like a lot of the pushback that I usually get is like, "Well, wasn't that just like another African doing it? Like, wasn't that just like mm-hmm. you know, like weren't they like friends before?" And they just like, oh, "Like, you got to stop making this all about the U.S." And it's like you, you must not know like how. <laughs> how could it just work right i mean like yeah, yeah. um and this is not just like with the u.s right i mean like what happened to thomas and Carr in the 80s yeah was like you know his basically like the military like got close with uh france they were newly decolonized and um you know uh the coup d'etat happened like and it was another african leader but like, i mean the key difference is that they gave all the all of their resources uh back to france right yeah and like you have to actually see like what actually happened like politically it's not just about aesthetics right it's not just about oh who the type of person is or who they believe it's like actually what happens to the core resources of the country is like Mm -hmm. really key to actually you know unlock that mysticism that i think is usually brought in with these things yeah and bevins you know he brings up this point that the you know which is it's interesting i mean i i never really thought about like this uh but the the third world, like the concept of the third world was positive, right? At its origin, you know, and it was these countries in the former colonial world who were just saying like, look, it's, you know, we're going to rise to modernization, right? You know, we're going to uh, run our economies on our own terms, right? Run our states on our own terms. And through that, we will become equals to the West as opposed to dominated by it. And Bevins sort of in his, you know, epilogue to the disaster in Indonesia is like, if you look at the countries that constituted the third world prior to the second world war, they're essentially in the exact same spot today that they were prior to 1945. Yeah. I mean, and if you can, you could really mark that. I think he includes graphs and stuff. You can really Mm -hmm. see like the time and the most dark really is like, well, I don't want, I don't want to say most, but the one that you see a lot is, you know, during uh, shock therapy in 1991, right, where you look at the GDP chart of Russia, newly created Russia yeah. um, at the time, right? But like that, those charts you can really see um, around the world too. Uh, when uh, and you could compare the U.S. and Britain's GDP growth to those countries that were, you know, in a coup and supposed to now like impose capitalism and become modernized. Uh, they kind of stagnated, right? And um, that kind of shows that, you know, it's not that they uh, grow continuously. They actually become an extractive uh, resource, right? Mm -hmm. And not to say that GDP is even a good metric to use, but even if we're using, like, the ruling classes, like, metrics, right, to, like, 
measure the yeah. success of it's countries. not everything but it's not nothing it's not nothing <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it, and it certainly is indicative of like you know yeah. even like what the ruling class is measuring as like a successful country um a lot of the countries that uh were uh, overthrown and the communist party completely killed uh, lo and behold they actually are pretty stagnant in terms of economic growth yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I was telling you, Munia, there was a story maybe a decade ago in the press um, about Indonesia and Jakarta specifically. Jakarta has become one of these sort of mega cities that exists all across the third world where essentially proletarianization has gone on. Right. People have been thrown off the land and forced into cities, uh, creating giant slum districts and things like that. Jakarta is a massive city. Uh, the you know, civilian infrastructure of Jakarta, though, really hasn't been touched since the days of Sukarno, specifically the uh, the like uh, transit infrastructure. So the train system in Jakarta basically dates to the, you know, late 50s, early 1960s under Sukarno, which has led to this disastrous situation where there's millions more people than the trains can handle. Everybody's broke because they've been, you know, by being thrown into the wage system, by being proletarianized, they have nothing, right? And so they ride the trains by just climbing on top of the trains. And the answer to this problem is not we should build better transit infrastructure and maybe not charge for it or improve people's wages or any of that. The answer was, they hung giant concrete balls from wires <laughs> so that when you were riding the train, if you're on the roof, the ball would like bonk you off like a fucking <laughs> video game platformer from the 80s. And when that didn't work, they discussed hanging electrical wires down to like electrocute you if you're riding on top of the train. Right. <laughs> and, you know. I think we were pretty critical of Sicardo's politics and we'll probably be a little more critical of him down below as well. But I don't think that was the vision he had for, you know, Indonesia's, you know, movement into the first world, right. You know, for no, their, yeah. you know, for their moving into modernization. To electrocute such. people while like not, uh, <laughs> instead of improving the transit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause they have to get on top of the train. Cause you literally don't have enough trains for people to ride, like to ride inside of it. You know, I mean, the levels of failure and then response are crazy. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's been the impact of the Cold War. And so what you saw was after the Second World War, the United States very consciously and carefully saw itself as the head of a, a, the capitalist order as it existed prior to the war. The United States is now the head of it, had supplanted Britain, and was set about reconstructing it, right? Mm -hmm. Reconstructing all the old, you know, roots of raw material extraction, right? All that kind of stuff. And the Cold War is probably better seen as a war of the United States and its allies against the Third World in order to force it away from its dreams of maybe exiting that colonial relationship to force it right back into its place, right? Yeah, which is, which is what uh, people will describe now as neocolonialism, right? Like yeah. that's kind of how neocolonialism actually got like, you know, in imposed um in a way like mm -hmm. to create that you have to have um that relationship still be there right that relationship mm -hmm. still has to be there yeah and i mean it's interesting i mean we we mentioned that the sort of position in the soviet union immediately after the second world war was that 
oh, hey, uh, like the capitalists are just going to get in a world war against each other again, right? Like, because this crisis of imperialism has not gone away and the world can only, you know, <laughs> everything that can be found has been found, right? So now it's just how you carve it up and how you divide it. And essentially, that's what happened. It just didn't happen in the image that anybody, I think, after the Second World War imagined it, right? They were picturing, you know, battlefields full of tanks, right? Which was what they just went through. But that's not what it looked like. What it looked like was fields full of corpses of people who've yep. been rounded up in the middle of the night, shot in the back of the head, chopped up, right, whatever, and then thrown in a field, thrown in a river, etc. Now... The impacts of this, I think, are still completely unappreciated in our day. Uh, one is that the casualties in this war, which number in the many millions, uh, these people were sought out specifically for their politics to be murdered. So millions upon millions upon millions of communists, socialists, labor leaders right union organizers leftists etc were murdered during the cold war and the u.s's sort of war against the third world and i think the question that's kind of impossible to answer right is what kind of impact does that have on just global politics right the politics of these various countries etc it is super hard to answer because we're living in the world where uh, this stuff actually did happen and we're seeing the result of it. I think what we would like to think uh, would be the case is that a lot of uh, movements after that, basically killing um, entire like all of, like the labor organizers, the Communist Party, right, of a particular country, um, not only like would affect, you know, the politics and just conditions of that country for you know the short term but also up till today decades later right like when you have generations born into a world that is just completely dominated by um capitalism by uh you know a lack of um you know social movements in the country really or like co at least cohesive so social movements uh one that doesn't really have an emphasis on class struggle because the communist party was killed um you know i think that actually has an even bigger long-term impact if you're if people are born into it without even being exposed to that struggle right mm -hmm. which i think is why you see a lot of maybe if you want to like take it back to the united states right is why you might see a lot of like much like old, old people actually remember a time when there was like class struggle in the US, right? Like yeah. in, in a really real way and like, yeah. no, like knew what it was like when the labor unions were really strong in the US and what it is now. And I think, you know, it's hard for young people uh, to even envision that now. And I think that that's what, uh, you know, anti-edifice is about is like, you know, like when you kind of have a vision of, uh, you know, there is no like alternative that like presents this almost like schizophrenic uh you know mental health crisis right which mm -hmm. might even like because the idea is that i don't even know what alternative there even is to offer because there's nothing offered right on the left anymore yeah. because it's all gone and that i think mean, allows for free reign and the idea i mean frankly neoliberalism in general and the fall of the soviet union was that nail in the coffin for like you know talking about like killing like a global left um and, you know, we're now living in a world that I think really does not have a strong 
uh, counter to mm -hmm. um, very like rapacious capitalism. And you know what would that look like? I think that it it certainly uh, would not be as bold as we're seeing now. Um, certainly, uh, the ways that fascism I think you know come about is from what we were kind of talking about a little bit off mic is like you know when people go searching for answers um you know of why things are so wrong uh mm -hmm. they're going to be looking and you know the job of like left movements and communist parties uh feminist movements as uh, socialist movements is to present a analysis that actually bases it around material like clash issues right and like why you know your life kind of sucks and keeps on declining and getting less if that's not there like, you'll have whole generations getting raised up on oh well you know uh, it, conspiracy theories like you know nihilistic ideas of race baiting right like stuff mm -hmm. that divides classes further um i think with the existence of communist parties that simply would be harder to pull off than it is now yeah potentially even just like control over countries because like we saw in indonesia um it was a big threat like the pki obviously uh you know didn't arm themselves when necessary but you know beforehand when they did have an armed movement they were the U.S. was worried that, like, that was, like, the actual leverage uh, that, like, you know, they had. They were like, okay, the PKI actually might be able to take government if if Sukarno goes down, right? Like, mm -hmm. we need, like, the Muslim, you know, more right-wing organization to have that same level where if there isn't, like, an armed communist party, uh, you know, ready to take charge, because that's, I mean, whether you like it or not, like, from the barrel of the gun is the way within the third world historically is, like, you know, the way that uh power is like taken it's not just from yeah. various uh protests right like yeah they're not it's making actually... uh, strong arguments to change minds no, right no it's <laughs> yeah. not just from strong arguments right like you know when when you're dealing with uh governments with militaries right and when you're dealing mm -hmm. with the cia um the people who take power are usually the ones who are most disciplined and organized and have like a strong army Right, because they need mm -hmm. to go to war against the military. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, um, you know, the CIA was sweating when they saw, oh, the PK is actually serious. These aren't this guy, just guys like you know, uh, trying to make strong arguments and change minds. They're actually actually looking like they might take power, right? If this mm -hmm. happens, and that just that even second thought of, oh, there is a counter force. That might actually, when power like Mao did in 1949 with the Communist Party, um, you know, defeating uh, the colonial powers of Japan and the nationalists of China, right? Um, that provides a threat. And I think that threat is now just completely gone. And mm -hmm. now that kind of like seeps into the mind of people, right? So like living in like a, a society that basically has the left crushed, I mean, just like I think fucking sucks. And now that people don't even have a memory of a time when there was a class struggle or left movement, you have to really dig into history to figure that out. Um, I think that has a profound impact. Because yeah. then uh. how how do you even like restart a communist movement when there isn't a, when that tradition is gone, right? Like yeah. that that becomes significantly harder when that the language doesn't even process. That's why I think in Latin America, um, you see so many like left leaders getting elected right now. Um, and not all of them are like communists. That's why I'm just broadly saying left. But um, I mean, the reason why a lot of uh, the stuff that they're proposing, which if we're, if we're proposed in America, like nationalizing, you know, 
a lot of oil and maybe, you know, uh, doing these like, you know, climate projects, et cetera. Um, that might sound ludicrous in America, but I think it actually makes sense to people in Latin America because they actually lived through a time when that was happening, right? Like yeah, yeah. when like, you know, workers' rights were significantly prioritized, when land reform actually happened and they saw the benefits of that to their family, right? Like mm -hmm. I think when you don't have any of that experience and it's all mysticized, um, it, it leads to a really dangerous place. And I think yeah. that's kind yeah. of, you know, in America, especially within the coming generations, um, that's kind of where it has been mostly because of propaganda. But, you know, I think like after this last generation dies, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a generation that remembers a strong labor movement in the U S right. Or, yeah. uh, which I think, you know, it, it really does like provide some serious, um, consequences. Yeah I, yeah. I don't know if that's going to be good, uh, long-term. Right. And, yeah, I, you know, I, I, and I want to bring up one more point. I mean, there was a, I just want to shout it out because it was the first book that really made me think about it in this way. But maybe a decade ago, there was a book by Christian Parenti called Tropic of Chaos that really made me think about this in this way. But counterinsurgency itself, which was the technique largely used to fight this Cold War, it dissolves social bonds. So not only are you killing you know, people who these leftists, right? These people who have the intellectual resources that you lose by killing them, right? And by intellectual, I don't mean like they went to fucking Harvard. What I mean is like they know how to run a meeting, right? Like they know mm -hmm. how to like organize for a labor strike, right? You know, those those tools, right? The skill sets, right? You destroy those by killing the people, right? Which is why you kill them, right? Yep. But the other thing it does is it dissolves the very social bonds that allow those tools to function in the first place, right? You make everybody scared of one another, right? You make them paranoid, right? Uh, that way, if somebody does come to you and propose, hey, I think we should do this labor action or something like that, you have to think, is this a cop who's trying to lure me into a trap right you yep. know like if i participate in this will i be turned in the very person who's making that choice to go and tell you about this or that you know labor action or whatever it has to worry every person i talk to you know are they potentially the person who's going to have me killed disappeared whatever and while that sounds extreme across the world labor organizers disappear all the time yep you know uh conveniently completely uncovered by our news but they disappear all the time and in the united states the situation isn't so dire that people feel like they're going to be disappeared or whatever but the intimidation that helps to keep things like labor organizing stuff from happening here is that when you're told about this stuff people get scared and i don't think they really think that much about why they get scared when they start to hear like oh maybe we want to form a union in our factory right our shop or whatever right I don't think they think a ton about why they get scared, but the reason why they get scared is the uh, sort of written into our DNA, the anti-communism of the Cold War, the idea that siding with the left against capital is going to have consequences. Yeah, The state is on capital's side, and if you side against it, well, who knows what could happen, right? Yeah. And that lives in everybody's brain, and that breakdown of just the social bonds that hold people together i mean the the historical thing that we've talked about to this that we were talking about just before we came on the historical comparison is maybe the collapse of reconstruction and the hyper violence uh in the aftermath of the collapse of reconstruction 
that broke the social bonds that had been just been building at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And they were in their nascent stage. And by collapsing Reconstruction, by sending, you know, racist, you know, violent goons into the South to rediscipline the people of the South, you know, it sent the South back into the fucking Dark Ages. Yep. You know? And I that just happened on a international level you know which is what the cold yeah, war was exactly and that hesitation you're talking about brian i mean we were recently talking about um iran and how like iran was such a, a big part of uh the cold war in you know the 1950s the 1960s and you know like iran and a lot of places in the middle east um the thing that always strikes me is like these U.S. occupations or, you know, installed U.S. dictators, um, you know, their power grip slips, right? And that leaves mm-hmm. opportunity. And now we always ask, like, oh, why is it always, you know, like the, like, fundamentalist, like, religious uh, factions who are, like, taking over from that, right? And, like, you know, it's, that's really weird. Like, why is the option basically, like, a, a Western, like, colonial occupation or a brutal, like, fundamentalist religious regime, right? Why are those the Mm -hmm. two options? And, you know, it's because probably, like, the former uh, regime of the Western occupiers killed the Communist Party. Yeah. And, you know... (laughs) There was no alternative. Yeah, there wasn't, right? And so if, 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 like, labor organizers... Um, you know, the Communist Party, et cetera, are all killed. That leaves the door wide open for, you know, these fundamental, like, religious, uh, you know, occupiers, basically, like, to uh, take control. Because um, if there was, like, a coherent Communist Party, like, that would be their moment when, like, you know, the West is slipping to, you know, swoop in and instead you get a kind of a brutal regime instead but that's really because of you know the u.s's policy of destroying the left right like yeah there really was like no other uh you know place that it could go so i mean arguably while we could, i think the blowback from the cold war um is seen as like this dichotomy between two conflicting sides in reality you know um those religious fundamentalist groups are the only way that they really could have like, you know, gone into prevalence as they did is because of us foreign policy yeah. it's because of, you know, the decisions that they made to destroy the left, the decisions they made to destroy the left by funding those groups and giving them a lot of weapons. Right. Uh, because, uh, you know, they're pretty like right wing, uh, anti-communist, uh, groups a lot of the time, right. Whether it's the Islamic state, the Islamic Republic, the Mujahideen, et cetera, those are all results of U.S. foreign policy. So they're not actually, um, you know, conflicting or contrasting regimes in that sense, even though one overthrew the other, right? This is Mm -hmm. now like inside their own circle. That's the only way that you can fight because the outside of the circle is gone. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And, you know, I'll say quickly that the phenomenon of a politicized radical Islam, right? Fundamentalist Islam it's not an old phenomenon. That is a very new phenomenon, a product of the Cold War itself, much like a radicalized, politicized Christian evangelical, you know, fundamentalism in the United States mm-hmm. is not an old phenomenon, but actually a very new one 
uh, you know, it dates all the way back to the 1960s. Some of some of y'all, myself included, have parents older than these phenomena, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and you know, we're gonna get to that in a later episode. I'll say so. We'll be talking about why the rise of radical Islam happens, and uh, if you've been listening to the show so far, uh, yeah, it's probably what you think. All right, so. Real quick, at the end of yesterday's episode, we left on a very pro- provocative, I think, uh, excerpt from Bevan's Chicarda Method book. And we said, we'll talk about it in the discussion episode. It's just too much to get into now. And here we are waiting to the end again, because, you know, look, we like to tease, I guess. So I just thought I would just read this segment again, just to kind of remind everybody and then I think maybe we'll close out on just our thoughts on on the on this bit here. So, again, this is from uh, the tail end of Bevan's Jakarta method. Quote, when the world's largest communist party without an army or dictatorial control of a country was massacred one by one with no consequences for the murderers, many people around the world drew lessons from this with serious consequences. This was another very difficult question I had to ask my interview subjects, uh, especially the leftists from Southeast Asia and Latin America. When we would get to discussing the old debates between peaceful and armed revolution, between hardline Marxism and democratic socialism, I would ask, quote, who was right? In Guatemala, was it Arbenz or Che who had the right approach? Or in Indonesia, when Mao warned Idit that the PKI should arm themselves and they did not? In Chile, was it the young revolutionaries in the MIR who were right in those college debates or the more disciplined, moderate Chilean Communist Party? Most of the people I spoke with who were politically involved back then believed fervently in a nonviolent approach and gradual, peaceful, democratic change. They often had no love for the system set up by the people like Mao, but they knew that their side had lost the debate because so many of their friends were dead. They often admitted without hesitation or pleasure that the hardliners had been right. Idit's unarmed party didn't survive. Allende's democratic socialism was not allowed, regardless of the detente between the Soviets and Washington. Looking at it this way, the major losers of the 20th century were those who believed too sincerely in the existence of a liberal international order, those who trusted too much in democracy, or too much in what the United States said it supported rather than what it really supported. What the rich countries said rather than what they did, that group was annihilated. Yeah, I think this quote really, really stuck out to me when I was reading the Jakarta Method. And I think that it made me think for a long time, especially, you know, being an American, not really being exposed, uh, you know, directly to stuff that is like an alternative to just like, you know, like liberal democracy. I think it really made me think hard and critically and honestly just like changed just a lot of my perspectives. Right. Because it really is true is that sure, you know, we can have this debate on whether arm struggle is necessary or, you know, whether we can actually, you know, achieve a left movement through liberal democracy and, um, you know, elections without uh, having armed struggle because it's it's not convenient to really uh, say like, oh, well, you know, we need to have guns and whatever. It, it sounds, it feels nice to be like, oh, well, you know, we can just like, you know, win hearts and minds and, you know, organize and play by the rules, right, that are set up. 
because, you know, they're playing by the rules and they're winning elections. If we just win elections, it will be fine. But as we saw, as soon as like those rules are getting bent, suddenly, oh, the party is banned. Oh, um, you know, we're going to spend like, you know, millions of dollars against you on the election. Right. Like all of these kind of like, you know, semi undemocratic things that are happening. And then if like you beat those, then they'll just kill you. So mm-hmm. it's like actually not about the theoretical of we could just win uh, just by doing organizing and winning through like, you know, electoral measures. Right. Let's like, oh, actually, if you're like going against a violent empire um, that uh, you're claiming to try to you know decolonize away from uh, and that empire is backed by capital, there's it just seems like, you know, the proof is in the pudding where. One side uh, actually gained power and maintained it, and one side got annihilated. And it really does like raise a lot of questions on like how to actually uh, build power. And like if, let's say, in some fluke of nature in the U.S., something like that happens, right, where you get like a uh, someone who's like a democratic socialist, for instance, who's running for president who has significant pull, right? Um, mm-hmm. It begs the question on if that actually succeeds, what methods throughout uh, the system would be thrown against them, right? Because the PKI was becoming a dominant party in Indonesia. And then that's suddenly when the PKI uh, gets eradicated, right? So like, you know, you can only play against the rules and play for the rules when it matters to capital. But after that, kind of gloves are off, right? And so it does kind of point to this almost idealist utopian idea on what the world is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I kind of get a little annoyed whenever someone says, Oh, this is a battle between authoritarianism and democracy. It's like, well, what, what do you mean by democracy? Right. (laughs) Like, cause in, in my view, I don't think the U S will use in democracy at all. And you can, you know, make, um, you can make like, you know, examples just in house on, just like you know voter suppression and shit but i mean like in reality it's more of like when when the u.s says that they're bringing democracy right to to a place why does it always end up being a military dictatorship right Mm -hmm. (laughs) like um who can fight against that right when when you're playing on that battleground it's not convenient to say that yeah you have to go to war um and like you know engage in stuff that might risk your life but Unfortunately, your life is at risk already, right? And um, I think that, you know, the people who, uh, you know, had Mao's approach to have a people's army and to have, you know, armed struggle, just looking at it historically, they ultimately won. And, you know, the People's Republic of China is still around, right? Like the ones that actually did, you know, Vietnam is still a communist country, um, you know, with significant armed struggle. That ends up also leading discipline and you know further having like a military that can defend against a uh, backlash if revolutions actually happen so i mean like there's a lot of things to say and it's like i think this idea of like bevan said trusting liberalism at its word right and thinking that like liberalism will actually make you free is a trojan horse i yeah. it actually i think and we don't need to a lot more people to get massacred for that point to be proven. Cause I think the cold war is the shining example of how you will get completely be completely unprepared and be annihilated. If you're going up against um, Imperial armies, right? Like that's just an unfortunate reality. 
right? Yeah. And it was something that was hard to come to terms with because I I I would look I would have loved to think that left movements could be brought up and you know governments ran by the people for the people could be you know organically done within the electoral system, right? Like that sounds nice, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I really think that this question that Bevins poses and kind of answers, uh, along with the people who did survive these horrors, um, answered was that you know, I, that actually might not be possible within the current conditions. Yeah. And I think, you know, you bring up this interesting point, yeah, about the idea of authoritarianism versus democracy or whatever. But, you know, the popular view in America would be that a guy like Vladimir Lenin or, you know, Mao Zedong or Fidel Castro, right, that the reason why they had these violent revolutions was because they're anti-democrats, right? They don't believe in democracy. They hate democracy, et cetera, right? And the actual answer couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, uh, you know, one, they <laughs> after all these revolutions, they had more democratic systems installed in those countries that existed before or since. I mean, that just should be said. But I think a comparison on the American side that maybe, you know, because all this gets tied up into weird racial stuff, you know, Lenin and Mao are Oriental. So they like, you know, that was <laughs> Kennan's thing. Like they're just prone to dictatorship. Right. Uh, Fidel Castro, he's just another Latin American strong man, all this kind of stuff. So we'll bring it back to the United States. Right. By the time of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, right. The war that's going on in Kansas, right. The already existing civil war in Kansas, the people who were fighting against slavery had given up on, quote unquote democracy right they were just going to take the war to the south one way or another to liberate the slaves of the south that wasn't because they were not democrats right like it's small d like that they hated democracy or something like that that they wanted to install a a genghis khan style (laughs) rule over america it's because they had learned through hard-won experience that american democracy was not capable of ending slavery that yeah. it was not capable of attacking the pillar of its own economy in the way that was required to defeat this, you know, fucking unholy institution that existed in its midst. You know, Lenin didn't want to have the revolution because he just loves fighting so much. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, if he thought that they could win an election and come to power that way, he would have fucking done it. He talked about it quite a bit, you know? I think, yeah. But the issue was he understood through hard-won experience that that was not something that the Russian state was capable of allowing him to do. Because what he was asking for, what the Communist Party was asking for, what the abolitionists were asking for, was a fundamental structural change in the political economy of the country that is going to unseat huge portions of that country, if not the entirety of that country's ruling class. And I think this is the thing where liberalism, it's sort of smoke and mirrors gets people lost, is why would the ruling class allow you to unseat them in anything other than a war? Yeah. Right. Why would they not take it all the way to the end in order to maintain their position? You know? You really think they would just let you elect somebody? Like, well, to take good their sir, wealth away? you, uh, <laughs> you, oh, you've won. So. You've won in the marketplace of ideas. I guess yeah. you can have all these guns I got. Tip to the hat. Here's every single gun, all of my wealth. Uh, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, here we engage in the fantasies of the Dunning School, you know, in their view of the antebellum South, that, oh, the Southern planters, they were always on the verge of just giving up on slavery. They're like, about to, you know, yeah, they were, they were right. going to do any day now. They were going to do it. They knew. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, that <laughs> is fantasy. Like, it is just plain making stuff up. And it's easy to understand why people want to make up the, and live in these fantasies is because the reality is extremely terrifying. Yeah. But the, you know, living in the reality is what you have to do. I mean, ID and the Indonesian communists, they lived in a fantasy world because they had been repressed in 48. They had seen the things the U S was doing around the world. And they had hoped there was some sort of way they could avoid the toll that the Vietnamese say were paying in Vietnam or the Koreans had to pay in Korea. They're hoping there's some way they could avoid that. And it just turns out you can't. draw this episode to an end and we'll see you all next week where we're gonna have even more cheerful news about what the u.s was doing in africa during the cold war so (laughs) (laughs) stay tuned you know you guys love it yeah (laughs) stay tuned and we'll see you on sunday bye 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 Wait, hold on, Munya. Hold on, Munya. So, your family was going to Hawaii to pick bananas, but missed the boat. What, what, is, what, what the fuck are you talking about? So, my great grandpa, someone who I actually had a really great relationship with, and um, thankfully knew him until he passed away when I was twenty. So, twenty years I wow. got to, you know, wow. be with him. Super, super. I mean, amazing. Um, and uh, he has this amazing story of. When he was, I believe it was like during his like college years, maybe like a little bit after, um, he was approached by like, I think one of his um, college classmates and he was like, Farley, I, I have this brilliant idea. Like, you're never going to believe this. Like, just like, hear me out. Okay. Like we're gonna, and they're like on the Northeast at this point. Right. So they're like, we're going to go all the way to Hawaii. Uh, we're going to traverse in like the jungle and collect like these like rare fruits called bananas. And we're going to bring them back to the U S it's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. Sure. There's a queen there and stuff. And like, we'd have to maybe like figure that out. Uh, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll figure out when we get there. there. Yeah, we'll figure it out when we get there. It'll be cool. Right. And so he was like, no, you gotta join me in this man. Like I, I I'm onto something big. Right. Um, and my great grandfather's response was, you're crazy, Dole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Munya and his family literally missing the boat on the Dole literally, fortune. The banana boat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. All right, everybody. Uh, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>
del otro lado de la frontera dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de gente Stay, stay.